Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm really excited to introduce our guest. It's Cheryl Durfler-Lake, who, gosh, I haven't seen probably in 10 years, maybe since Delhi, Cheryl, is that right? That is correct. Man, it's been a long time. So, Cheryl, how are you doing? I am doing well. Um, just hanging out here in South Jordan. Uh, a couple of years after the games ended, my husband and I moved to Oceanside, California. Uh, and we ended up living just a couple blocks away from the beach there. Absolutely loved it. Uh, we were in Oceanside for about 15, 16 years. And we left from there for a senior mission where we just the worst mission in the church, Hawaii, Honolulu. And so oh, we were I'm at, crying. I'm crying tears for you. <laughs> I know going from San Diego area to Hawaii it was such a hard transition, you know, uh, but we served at BYU Hawaii and I was in the human resources department, of course. And my husband taught business classes, mainly in the supply chain and Six Sigma area. He is a um, certified Six Sigma lean black belt guy. And then we ended up returning to a home we owned in South Jordan in the Daybreak area, which, quite frankly, was a bit of a surprise to us. We fully expected to go back to Oceanside, but family circumstances ended up with us coming back here a little. Well, a lot sooner than we thought we'd end up back in Utah. Well, do you miss Oceanside? I mean, come on, a couple of blocks from the beach? Uh, yes, terribly. <laughs> miss Oceanside, uh, miss Hawaii, um, but really, really enjoying being back where a lot of family is. Uh, and that's the primary reason we're back here. We just needed to be back with a, a lot of our family well, that's the most important thing, right? Family. And uh, of course, the cost of living is a bit less here in Salt Lake City. Well, particularly there in Daybreak or the southwest end of the Salt Lake Valley than it would be in Oceanside, I imagine. Yes, a fair bit. Yes. All right. And it looks like you're joining from home. Are you still working or are you just on full-time family duties? Uh, I am still working. I'm doing a lot of consulting work. I actually started out the year best year ever, and uh, that quickly dried up by April. But I recently picked up a new client. Um, I specialize in the pay equity compensation arena and really, really enjoy working with a small to medium-sized companies who, who don't have that kind of expertise on staff. Uh, I also am serving as a senior service missionary at the Riverton Employment Resource Center. So we're, of course, not in the centers now, but I hold a lot of Zoom meetings with the patrons that I'm working with to help them find jobs. And even though this is a pandemic and lots of people have lost their jobs, there's still millions of jobs out there. Uh, you you got to dig a little harder and you really got to work your network a little better. But uh, I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Just meeting the senior missionaries I serve with are awesome. And then I really enjoy the patrons I'm working with as well. 
and and then providing a fair bit of childcare while our daughter is going to school. So staying pretty busy. Yeah, it sounds like you're staying really busy. The employment thing is really interesting. My mother is also a senior missionary in the employment center in West Valley. It's uh, like on 5600 West and I don't yep. know, something's 3500 South or something like that. Let's go back to the games in Salt Lake 20 years ago or so. Um, Why don't you give us a little bit of background on what you were doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and what was your pathway to Salt Lake? Pretty interesting pathway. I was actually head of human resources for a, uh, it was a small startup high tech when I started. We had grown the business quite well to about 400 employees. And then had a downturn. Uh, Company ended up actually pretty much going out of business, had to lay off a lot of the company. And it was probably mid to late April of 2001. And I sent out an email blast to virtually everybody I knew. Uh, And I had previously hired Jamie Shaw as an intern. And when Jamie got my email, she said, send me your resume right away. We've been looking for someone just like you. uh, And, uh, you know, we really need you. And so I said, okay, well, this is interesting. Having just been laid off from a job, this is not a job I would have applied to because, hello, it had an end date right there in our offer letters. (laughs) But I thought, well... Jamie's super excited about it. And I loved working with Jamie, thought she was an amazing woman. And so I thought, what the heck, why not? And went and interviewed with Ron Mortensen. And I think Tam Bevan was part of the interview team as well. Uh, And my last day at my former employer, iLink, was my first day with Slock. And what an amazing door that opened for me. Uh, as you mentioned, we worked in Delhi together and that the people that I met, Darren Hughes and Jamie, and you and I didn't even interact that much during the the Salt Lake games, but having met Darren and Jamie and that just segued into the starting of my consulting work. Uh, so I was primarily over all of compensation benefits and human resource information systems. And it was fascinating because the whole entity was going to go away. So none of the normal rules about COBRA or being able to leave your 401k there, none of that was in place. We had to figure out a new plan uh, and then my team was also responsible for all of the back office onboarding, getting everybody into the HRIS system, making sure everybody got paid, resolving any pay issues. It was always the most fun thing to do, resolve pay issues. And then we also handled all of the offboarding process. So I think I was around number 400 to be hired. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure I started May 7th, somewhere right around there. And of course, by February, we had 8,500 paid staff in the system. So just an, an 
an enormous undertaking in a very short time frame and to see the entire life cycle of an organization in that short of a time was just fascinating to me. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I have to give you major props for making sure the payroll was okay. I think payroll is one of the most thankless jobs anywhere because if you do it right, no one says anything. And if you short someone a nickel, they're jumping all over you like, hey, you got my pay wrong. So, um, you know, major props for, for, for tackling that one. Now, I have to ask you about, you mentioned you came in already knowing that there was going to be an end date. You're coming out of one job that is, I mean, the company is basically shutting down. You're coming into another thing where you know it's going to be temporary. So what's your mindset when you come into this kind of a thing? It's like, well, I got, you know, 10 months or I got a year here. I'm just going to make the best of it. Or are you always kind of looking over your shoulder thinking, well, you know, if, if the right opportunity comes along, maybe I jump. I mean, what what was your mindset coming into the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? So the the company that laid me off, that was the first time I got laid off. Slack was the second time I got laid off. I ended up getting laid off four times in six years. So by the time the last one came around, I was getting pretty good at getting laid off. But um it, the mindset going in was I, I was all in. I As soon as I interviewed with everybody, I was like, this is awesome. I am all in. I'm just going to, you know, give it my best and stay committed and until this thing is over. I never, ever thought about leaving. Um, fortunately for me, I I had a husband who was working. Of course, I didn't expect him to get laid off. But, you know, so it's kind of a little bit of a backup. And we um, managed our lives in such a way that it, 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 would wor- it worked for us. So I just thought this is just a fascinating opportunity. I actually was working for a law firm in downtown L.A. during the 84 Olympics. And I remembered at the time just going, oh, this is just going to make traffic so bad. I why are we doing this? And traffic was the easiest commute I ever had the entire time I worked down there and always regretted. I'm like, how stupid was I to not be a part of that? And yet it still wasn't at the top of my mind when Jamie responded to my email blast. And But then having had this experience, it's just such an amazing experience. I, I get verklempt when I think you know, it was just the people that I met and everything that happened and it, how well it went. And it was just amazing for everything. And I'm like, oh, I hope they come back. <laughs> I don't care how old I am. I still I want to be a part of it. And I really hope it we get another chance to do it because it was great. I totally agree. I would love the opportunity for it to come back again. And as many people have said on this podcast, get the band back together, so to speak. That would be a lot of fun. I want to come back to something that you said a little bit earlier. When you joined, you were about employee number 400. And this is less than a year to go before games time. And then the workforce ramps up to more than 8,000 people, you said. So what's that like? <laughs> you know, coming into a situation and saying, 
we have to hire almost 8,000 people? Well, thankfully, I wasn't in charge of the actual hiring. That was more uh, Christian LaBarbera's group and, and everybody else in recruiting. But it, my first 30 days was, um, you need to put on a plan for shutting this place down and transitioning everybody out. And I'm like, okie dokie, I will, I'll get that figured out. Uh, because part of that process, you know, you, you've heard all those stories about Atlanta and people just driving away in cars and they, they didn't nail down any of the, the Olympic resources. And we just, I just worked with my team who were all mostly fresh college grads. They'd never done this either, but we had a few people. We had Emma Martin who had worked the Sydney games, um, we, um, Alice in Paradise had been at Slock for a while. We just all put our heads together and said, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure those reports are done? How are we going to make sure those assets are turned in? And then just how are we going to get everybody into the system? And it really was just heads down. I, I have no conception of how many hours I worked because the game's start date don't change. And I've used that example the rest of my working career is don't tell me how hard it is. You know, we have floating deadlines here. Those games started the day the, they were going to start. You couldn't negotiate that. You couldn't change it. Those were the days. So you just had to get everything done. Um, streamlining the process as well as we could, training the group as well as we could, and, and then just putting in the hours to just knuckle down and get it done. Well, it, it's funny. I talked to a lot of people and working for the games was a joy. But when you say things like, I don't even know how many hours I worked, you know, to, to the lay person, that could sound like a really terrible experience. Like I was working my butt off. I was working so hard. Um, I was working with a bunch of people who were green and didn't know what they were doing. You know, you could you could easily take an attitude like, you know, this is this is ridiculous. but for many of us, it was like the time of our lives. Absolutely. I, it's, it has been such an interesting thing through the rest of my career because everybody looks at my resume and says, so tell me about this. What was that like? And I'm like, best job ever. And every other job will pale in comparison, which is a terrible thing to say when you're interviewing for a new job, but it was just the absolute truth. There Everything about the games, from where they had started and the scandal uh, and cleaning things up and and being behind, but getting on top of it and just getting it done and just the commitment. And then, you know, of course, 9-11 happened in the middle of that. Well, my birthday is 9-11. <laughs> so that day started out for me, you know, I was, everybody had said, what do you want for your birthday? I'm like, oh, let's do a breakfast brunch. And I'm sitting there getting ready for work. And, you know, none of us could believe what we were seeing on the TV. And I thought, well, wow, is this real or what? I don't understand. You know, you couldn't even comprehend it. And I was taking tracks into work. Um, my I would come carpool with my husband and he dropped me off at a track station right by his office and I'd take it the rest of the way. So I went into work and we got there and everybody had brought in the breakfast food for my birthday celebration. And I don't think we were there more than 30 minutes when it was like, everybody go home. We don't know if this building is a target. 
And so, you know, we all went home and it, it was just, I gained a deep appreciation for people whose birthday is on D-Day or Pearl Harbor Day because <laughs> it's, you know, it, it really changes what that day is all about, what you see in the news. I was super happy on the one-year anniversary to be on a canal boat in the Surrey Canal near Nottingham, England, because I, I had no press around me. I was just enjoying time being with my parents who were on a mission in the um, Birmingham, England area, and my husband had come over with me, and we we just enjoyed the time and, and tried to kind of close that out because it was such a sad day, that one-year anniversary. Absolutely. It was a horrible day, and I cannot imagine what it's like to have your birthday on that day. You mentioned the first year you basically escaped and you went to England. Uh, but but after that, um, you know, how's it been? Have you been able to kind of make peace with that? You know, having the sharing the birthday with with that uh, with that horrific, iconic day? Well, I like that they named it Patriots Day. You know, I I love our country. I love the flag. And my father is a Korean War veteran. My grandfather was a World War One veteran uh, who had immigrated to this country from Germany. So he fought against his own homeland during that war. And so I like that it's Patriot Day and I kind of hold on to that positive aspect of it. And just a day of remembrance of all those who did sacrifice so much. Well, I, I, I find it interesting that you identified that you looked at the positive aspect of it as Patriot's Day and bringing this back to the games, it seems to me that many of the people who really succeeded in this chaotic slot environment were people that had a positive outlook, you know, people that were optimistic, they were, you know, or roll with the punches kind of people. Yeah, it, it just, you know, it's been interesting because you, you, they're talking so much and um, I'm listening to so many human resources related webcasts and they talk about resiliency and adaptability and um, the ability to, to, like you said, to roll with the punches, which is, it's, it's like the top three things that most companies are looking for. I've, I always like to say, I can teach somebody to do almost anything. I can't teach a work ethic. I can't train resiliency into somebody. Those, those are how you deal with life and that training. I mean, there is training that can be done, uh, you know, on a broad scale and a lot of leadership trainers come in and they do that, but it's so much better when you just come prepared that from your life experiences, from the examples of your parents uh, teaching you, you know, you're running that race. You fell down, get up, keep running because you just, you got to finish the race. Uh, and I think that's a super important thing to be training into our children and our grandchildren of just, you just got to take a deep breath and get up and who, you know, this pandemic is changing so many things about how we work and how we live and how we interact with each other. Some of which I don't think we'll ever go back to how it was before. And some of that's good. 
You know, I've got a nephew who works for Amazon in the Seattle area. He used to commute over three hours a day. Now he works from home. You know, he's like, I hope I never go back to the office. I love working from home. I love my job more working from home. So that that resiliency, that's adaptability, you you've got to have that to be successful in the games. And and I think those are the people that hung in there. Well, yeah, I think the people that can make lemonade out of the lemons that they are given um, will fare well. I say mentally and emotionally may fare well, you know, and, and that's the way it was at slot too, because it was very, very hard. Now, I want to go back to at the beginning of our conversation, you had mentioned that you've been giving this some thought and you actually put some notes together. So you've, you've come here prepared. Uh, and, and I appreciate that. And I want to make sure that we get to all of your, all of your stories. And so if I get too off on a tangent, you know, rein me back in because I want to make sure we, we get to the stories. Um, what were you doing at games time? Because a lot of the HR people, ended up getting deployed to venues as venue HR managers. So, you know, they, they went to the I center or they went to park city or deer Valley or whatever. So where were you, were you out on a venue or were you still back in the headquarters doing your comp and benefits and getting ready for all of the uh, employee offboarding, if you will? Um, I was actually assigned to the mock so I was there at the, you know, at our corporate offices in the Wells Fargo building and all of my team um, wanted to be at venues. And I'll, <clears throat> I'll never forget a conversation I had with Emma Martin. And I had said, hey, Emma, you're going to be at the mock with me. And she just looked at me and she said, I didn't come all the way from Sydney to sit in the mock. I want to be at the venue. And I'm thinking, man, I don't think they pay me enough to go be at you know, snow basin at 3 a.m. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, well, you know, that's, that's awesome. I will be here in the mock. And I thought I was going to sacrifice. I'm like, great. We're all happy. I'm in the mock and you go out to the venue. They had a fabulous experience at the venue. I loved being in the mock. Um, I really felt like I was at the center of everything. You know, you're sitting in that very large conference area there was a humongous screen in the middle of I think about eight to ten screens smaller screens on each side and whatever was the current competition venue was up on the big screen and then every single venue was up there and you had the FBI in there the CIA in there all the federal state city people and it was really a hub and we heard about everything you know i heard about who got drunk i heard about who got in the car accident i heard about things i probably still shouldn't talk about and it, it to me it was like super exciting um so i loved it during the games time and i was you know i didn't get out too much uh i had a big desire to at least go to one Olympic event. And so I, I looked at the cost of the tickets and everything. And I, I mean, I lived in Park City for a while. So I skied, I knew about skiing, but I thought, well, okay, let's, let's see. And, and I thought, oh, here's this short track racing. Uh, I, I don't know what that is, but it looks interesting. Bought the tickets for that went to the wrong place. We went to the Olympic Oval out in Kearns. 
And we're like, oh, great, this thing is starting. Made a mad dash to the Delta Center. And who did we get to see? Apollo Ono. You know, so it was super cool. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I hadn't ever really gotten into that sport, but I thought that's a, it was really exciting to watch. And so just thoroughly enjoyed that opportunity. All right. I got to come back to the main operations center. You mentioned there were all kinds of issues that came in there. Some of those you may not want to divulge. I understand that even though the statute of limitations may have passed on some of these items. So give us some of the things that you you saw coming into the main operations center. I know at the venues, they try to resolve as many things as they can at the venue if, they, if possible, but sometimes things cannot be resolved at the venue. They need to be escalated to the main operations center. So what were some of the kinds of issues that you, that you found coming in uh, from an HR perspective into the main operations center? Probably the biggest issues we had and the more most consistent were because of 9-11. Anytime a backpack or a box or a bag of any kind of size was left anywhere at all, um, it had to be investigated and it was treated very, very seriously. And I'm pretty sure I'm accurate when I say this, but I believe there were snipers situated on top of a lot of the buildings and in the mountain areas just in case, which most people didn't, were not aware of that during the game's time and would have made a lot of people nervous, but they were strategically positioned. But we, you know, we'd get the call in, there's a backpack, here's where it is. They'd get the bomb squad together. They'd send their little robot out there. They'd look at it, they'd contain it, and then they'd blow it up, you know? <laughs> it's like, don't don't leave your backpack anywhere. Um, I had heard a rumor that there was actually a bomb at one of the transformer stations, but they found it and diffused it. Now, I, I don't know how true that was. Um, and then there were um, various and honestly, you know, it has been almost 20 years. I can't remember the names, but there were some drunken disorderlies and really poor conduct of various athletes or country representatives and those had to be handled so delicately uh, because you you didn't want to start an international incident because somebody got drunk and crashed the car you know so it just a lot of things like that and just how the whole process went of all right who's investigating it whose jurisdiction does it fall under how are we going to resolve the situation and make sure that everybody gets handled as delicately as possible. What about the Paralympic Games? Were you operating in the main operations center as well during that period? I wasn't. I got deathly ill. I missed almost all the Paralympic Games. I was just deathly ill. Um, and I I called in every day. Ron Mortensen was my boss. And I'd be like, I'll come in. I'll come in if you need me. <laughs> And they were like, please stay home. Don't make the rest of us sick. And so I like the Paralympics are just a blur. I didn't watch. I was literally flat on my back in bed, I think, for like four or five days. Well, what happened? Did you eat uh, too many certified Angus beef hot dogs? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I just got really, really sick. It was just a really bad 
like bronchitis or strep. I, I can't remember, but it was something like that, but it just knocked me flat. Probably because of all the hours I had been working. And you know how sometimes when you're, your body knows you can take a little break, you get sick. Like how many times have you gone on vacation and you've gotten sick? Like you, you never got sick while you were working, but your body goes, oh, I can relax. And I, I think it was just that little gap between the Olympics and the Paralympics. And my body relaxed and went, okay, time to get really sick. That's a bummer to be sick during those games. The, the Paralympic games I thought were a lot of fun and I and I enjoyed those. I enjoyed uh, going and seeing some of the events and, cer- and the ceremonies. I really like the ceremonies. Yeah. The games, they come to an end, but you've got all this employee dissolution or people leaving. And then, um, you know, we, we, we just did a, a podcast a little while ago with Tori Baker and, and, you know, distributing all the stuff at the team processing center. We had all of those things that people could come in and buy, you know, chairs mm-hmm. and tables and. Yeah. I bought a sewing machine for my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you got a sewing machine. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought you could find a sewing machine <laughs> at the at the Salt Lake uh, whatever we called that asset distribution thing? Yeah. So, but HR is you know HR and finance are kind of like the last people there, yeah. right? They 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 kind of turn out the lights on their way out. So, when did you actually finish up your work there at Slock? I finished it up right around August, uh, and I think I was like I think there were like thirty people left. Um, Because I was like one of the last ones. I didn't have anything I was going to. And I said, hey, I'll just hang in here as long as you need me. Um, And it was like every week. I called it the porta potty cubicle because do you remember how many times we moved towards the end? And we ended up in these cubicles that would fold themselves into about a two foot by two foot square. (laughs) <laughs> and so you moved them from the 21st floor to the 14th floor to the seventh floor to the second floor. And it was, it just all closed in on itself. It's like, okay, we're moving, you know? And so we were constantly switching our offices and moving around uh, as we were processing more and more people out. But it it was really bittersweet because, you know, I got to say goodbye to almost everybody who was regular full-time staff and, we had their packets and um, we had designed the completion certificate because, again, we were going out of business. What was the proof that you ever worked for Slock? You know, there was nobody to call. Um, one of the hardest things about the company going away was the health insurance. We we had all kinds of meetings where I'm like, OK, this is before Obamacare. So there was no, you know market exchange you just went out into the open market and tried to find insurance uh and so we were bringing in representatives and the 401k that was pretty easy you could just roll it over into a fidelity ira i i still have it there with fidelity all these years later uh and that was fine but that health insurance was just a really sticky point for a lot of people because you just didn't think whoa wait a minute where where do I go for that? Um, so yeah, it was a lot of work pulling that all together. But yeah, it, yeah, my porta potty cubicle. I- <laughs>
All right. Well, what what else have you got there that you've you've typed up that you've that you've prepared as you've kind of jogged your memory over the last couple of weeks? Well, a couple of interesting things. Um, you know, after nine eleven, um, the airports every everything just got really weird at the airports. But you remember, we had to take our vacation time. They said, you take your vacation time, I think it was like by December 12th or something, or or you don't. It was that cut and dried and nobody takes any more vacation time the rest of the time. And again, we weren't even supposed to call in sick. They were like, drag yourself there. Um, so we had booked a trip to Cancun, Mexico. So we get there and I'm freaking out. You know, I was still pretty young. I hadn't thought about a will or anything. So I hand wrote a will in the Salt Lake airport. <laughs> and I, had, I mailed it to my sister. I bought an envelope and a stamp and mailed it to my sister. I'm like, well, if the plane goes down, at least they know where all the assets are. But we had a connecting flight in Atlanta and some dingling thought it was more important to make his flight then pick up his bag out of the security screening area. Well, so guess what? The entire Atlanta airport got shut down. They cleared out. That's a huge airport. They cleared us completely out into the parking lot surrounding the air, airport where we sat for six hours in the hot Atlanta. It was still pretty hot. And instead of arriving in Cancun at three o'clock and getting our courtesy shuttle, we arrived at about midnight. And I remember having to pay like a hundred dollars to a taxi driver to take us all the way to our resort because there, there was nothing else happening at that time. Um, interestingly enough, my first job after SLOC was working for TSA. The most interesting thing is I have no recollection of ever applying for or interviewing for this job. But like magic, this offer letter comes to me with a starting salary and a starting date. And are you ready to get going? And I'm like, why not? You know, <laughs> and I was part of a team that traveled from airport to airport to airport. There are about 20 of us. And we would take over about 40 rooms, you know, the rooms we were staying in and then other rooms to do it. And it's it was the only time I've ever actually worked for the government. And it was fascinating how you had to fill out a government application to make because they don't allow any thinking. There was no analysis of I wonder what they meant when they didn't draw that line all the way from that corner of the box to that corner of the box. And I did that for about six months, just traveling around all these different airports, hiring TSA security people. So that was a unique experience. Um, probably the other interesting thing is um, because of getting to know Darren during the Olympics. So my last layoff was when Altiris got sold to Semantic, which is a Norton antivirus. And Darren Hughes happened to call me on my last day of work. And I had been telecommuting back and forth from Utah to California. Uh, and Darren called me and said, is there any chance you have any bandwidth at all to help us with this little thing we're doing over in Delhi? And I said, I have all the time in the world. <laughs> what would you like me to do? And I started off doing a lot of compensation work for them, uh, helping them 
multiple, very disparate, you know, um, in-country comp results versus the, um, the what's the word I'm looking for? When you're pat, when you work for another country and you come in, but anyway. Yeah, so you're an expat. Expat, thanks. So all the expat were, you know, it was so different because the, the whole comp structure is very different. And I was interviewing all these um, elite athlete referees and everything for all the different games they have there. And then I became like the on-site fill-in person. So when someone needed to go on vacation or we had a situation where one of our team had a surgery unexpectedly. So I ended up doing five trips to India. I did two two-month trips and three one-month trips and just found it absolutely fascinating. Loved the country. I'm still connected to so many of the lovely people that I met working there. And my dad and my husband came over my last trip, they saw more of India than I did. They got to do the whole golden triangle thing. Uh, I was pretty much stuck in Delhi, but I did make it up to Agra to see the Taj, which was just amazing. And just the fun group of people that we had there. It it was a a great experience. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Delhi was a really interesting place. (laughs) <laughs> and the team was a lot of fun. I mean, we had Ralph and Patsy and yeah. and you were there and then Jamie and Darren and uh Leo Cohen came down for a while. Yeah. yeah, so it was a it was a good amount of fun and then um on the training side we ended up bringing in some people on on the training scene. We had uh, James Palmiter and Nisha mm-hmm. Paul. Yeah. And Andrew Dunscombe. Uh yeah, so it was a lot of fun. We I have to admit, the first time I went to Delhi in 2007, I got a really severe stomach bug. You know, it was just really, really bad. And I I was hesitant to go back again after that. <laughs> but um, it, it actually turned out turned out quite well. I do have a little TSA story for you. So you're talking about training the TSA people at the airports. So shortly after 9-11, well, after Salt Lake ended, I got a government contract to do some work for the Government Services Administration. And so I was commuting to Washington, D.C., back and forth every week. At that time, they had these random checks at the gate, you know, so you would go through the normal security. And then at the gate, as you were boarding the plane, they would pull some people out of line and they would check your bags there. And every Friday, I saw the same person at the gate and he would pull me out of line every Friday. I'm like, this is not random because he keeps doing it. And after about four or five times, my brother-in-law happened to be connecting through DC. He was coming back from Pittsburgh and we happened to be on the same flight. It was a total surprise. And as we get ready to board, I tell him, Hey, see that guy over there? I bet you he's going to pull me on a line for this random check. He's like, nah, nah, nah. I said, no, watch. He's going to yank me out of line. And sure enough, he did. He yanked me out of line. After about six or seven times, I actually asked him the question, why do you keep pulling me out every week? And he wouldn't answer me. Uh, he maintained his <laughs> silence. Maybe that's due to your training, right? It's like, you don't talk to the people. You just, uh, you know, you just do your thing. But uh, I, I, I always found that experience fascinating. <laughs> All right. Enough of my uh, crazy TSA stories. Okay. Anything else on your list before we go to our final segment? Uh, Nope. 
I think that the only other thing is, do you remember all the conversations we used to have at the, the end of the games? Because jobs were going to be hard to find. And we'd sit there going, well, we could live in our car. And we could get the doll, eat off the dollar menu at McDonald's or go to Costco and split a hot dog and a soda. <laughs> just all those funny things of just, oh, how hard is this going to be when we're all looking? But that that was, you know, my husband and I were both laid off um, right after the games. And that's what we did. We, we went to the dollar movie and we just kind of lived a, a tiny life for a while till we got the next job. But it all worked out. Well, you, you talked about the insurance, you know, that was a challenge. I remember going and buying a policy and I couldn't even get one for myself because I traveled too much. And so I ended up getting a policy for my wife and kids, but I wasn't on it. And uh, I had that for a long time. But the, I, one thing that did cushion the blow, though, was that they, they did have this bonus for people. And so we, we were able to get a little bit of money at the end of the games to help soften that blow a little bit and keep us stable, you know, for a, for an amount of time until we could find something else to do. Well, speaking of that little bonus, the re, the RNT retention and transition plan, when they first set that up, because Utah is very strict about that. And they say, if you're getting a severance, you don't collect unemployment. And somewhere along the way, somebody in unemployment decided that wasn't a severance. And so they said, nope, they can start collecting right away. So that was like, woo, <laughs> that was even better. We didn't have to wait for that bonus to run out. Hopefully everybody figured that out. I, unfortunately, I, I went to work for myself. So <laughs> I wasn't collecting unemployment, but, but uh, I was very grateful to have that bonus. Um, it, yes. was, it, was a nice, it was a nice cushion. Very All nice. All right. Cheryl, this uh, conversation has been a joy. I've really, really had a blast uh, catching up after a long period of time. We're coming to the end of our little podcast here, our final segment of the show, where we have three questions for everyone that we interview. And the first question has to do with music. So uh, any particular song that you hear today that reminds you of your time in Slock? Um, well, you know, I had a teenage daughter at the time and she got all of my tickets to the metal plaza. <laughs> so she enjoyed quite a bit of music with the I, the one that I do remember attending was with Ed's favorite group, Casey and the Sunshine Band. So all of their songs really remind me of that. And uh, and then I ended up collecting quite a few of the pins. So that that is a cool memory. And I still have, I have those in a display case and still hanging in my home. So that was fun. That was a lot of fun. I think Casey and the Sunshine Band played, remember they had some kind of a, a concert or something right after the games ended. It was kind of an appreciation for the staff and, yes. and volunteer, and, whatever. I think that's the, staff. the one I was at. Yeah. Yes. And uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band, they brought it. They were really, yeah. really good. I really enjoyed them. So We've got a Spotify playlist. I'm going to put a Casey and the Sunshine Band song on the Spotify playlist in your honor. Okay, let's go to our food question. Is there a particular restaurant that you like to go to when you were working there for Slock? So there was one, I'm pretty sure, and I was checking this with one of my former coworkers. There was one that was kind of 
right across the street, and I don't remember the name, but I love um, tomato basil soup. So I was always on the hunt for the best tomato basil soup. And this one right across the street, I swear, that's all I had to do was go across the street. And it had this amazing tomato basil soup. And so I was over there quite a bit. And then, you know, some of those McDonald's books happened to find their way into my hands. And every every once in a while, I would traipse up to the nearest McDonald's and um, buy a bunch of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies for my team <laughs> and bring them back. And they go, oh, thank you. <laughs> so that was fun stuff. I totally forgot about those McDonald's books. That's right. I remember those now, the McDonald's book. That's great. Thanks for bringing that back. And tomato basil soup. Uh, my wife loves tomato basil soup. So you've got an instant friend there. Okay, very good. Now, our final question for you today, Cheryl, before we let you go, what's the what's the goosebump moment for you? What's your favorite Olympic memory? Um, so I was I went to the um the dress rehearsal for the opening ceremonies, which was that whole thing was amazing. But you know, they didn't bring out the flag in the dress rehearsal. That that was saved. And you didn't know in the dress rehearsal who was lighting the flame either. That was a big secret till the very end. So I was there for the dress rehearsal in person. And then I watched the whole thing on TV and just got so excited about that. Uh, and then a few days later, Mike Ruzioni was in the slock offices because he'd broken the crystal on his torch. And so he came in to get a new crystal for the top of his torch. And I was able to meet him and get introduced to him. So that was pretty cool. And, and then I was one of those people who went to the Gateway Plaza at like two or three o'clock in the morning and held the lit torch and got my picture taken and still have that on the wall with all my pins. It's just a, you know, how many people have done that? It, it's a pretty small group. And so those are kind of my goosebump moments of who, you know, I may never get to do that again in my whole life. Well, you're absolutely right. It is a very special thing and there aren't very many people that get to experience it. We count ourselves very fortunate to have that opportunity. And I'm very grateful, Cheryl, for you coming on and sharing these stories with us today. If people want to get in touch with you learn more about the consulting that you're doing these days and helping clients, or they want to connect with you on Salt Lake 2002 memories or the things, what's the best way for them to reach out? Um, probably through my LinkedIn profile. I'm in there under, uh, actually I'll pull it up. It should be Cheryl. I I'm embarrassed. I don't know if it's Cheryl Lake or Cheryl Dorfler Lake. Um, yeah, Cheryl Dorfler Lake. Most people have not met another Dorfler in their whole life. Uh, and it's kind of cool because they used my whole name on the wall and it took two lines. So <laughs> that's kind of fun too. <laughs> but yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I'd love to hook up and I will definitely respond. I'm connected and that's kind of like my favorite way to connect with my business contacts and or search for me on Facebook. I'm I'm there all the time too. All right. Fantastic. Cheryl, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Cheryl, thank you. 
You're welcome. Thanks for asking, Christian.